You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board. My name is Jay Mack in St. Louis. And this is Sam Wade out in Nashville, Tennessee. And I noticed, Sam, your studio is coming together a little more back there. I've been spending some time on it. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to see you getting settled in because uh, studio should be a safe space and a fun space. And it's nice to look and see all your guitars on the wall. I wish I wish our listeners could maybe see your guitar collection. You got quite a quite an assortment back there. You got the McCartney bass back there. Yeah, even uh, complete with the bass man sticker. It's it's pretty uh, Beatles that. geeky for sure, man. Um, but it's good, you know. I it. it all the tools in my trade are there at, at my disposal, and I'm ready to get this all set up and start producing music again and producing the podcast. So it's good times. Love it. Absolutely love it. Well, just want to remind our listeners, a, a new episode of Two Tape Decks drops every Wednesday on pretty much all major streaming services, as well as check on Saturday where we have a mini episode called a B-side, which is something fun and or just odd, like odd discussion. Shorter episode, just if you don't have time for the full episode, check in on Saturdays for our B-side. Sam, you want to introduce our special guest? I do, J Mac. I'm really happy to welcome this week's guest, Willie Edward Smith. He's a songwriter based in St. Louis, Missouri, and we're really looking forward to chatting about his process. Um, he's written a whole wealth of songs. We're going to play one for you tonight, and we're just so glad to have him on. Say what's up, Willie. Hey, everybody. How you doing out there? Welcome to the show, sir. Welcome. Now, how do you and Sam know each other? All right, so... This can be a long story or this can be a short story. Oh, no, let's do short. let's do the short version because I want to get to the music, but yeah. I'm I'm curious. Was well, directly related to music, so I yeah, was it was away at school in Kirksville, going to Truman. I was out there for four and a half years, enrolled, and came home. And in the time I was out there, I went from somebody who freestyle rapped and did a radio show up there to someone who had picked up a guitar and started being a singer songwriter. I mean, I was just learning that when I got home. But because of my experiences, I was jaded on the, the music industry in general and didn't really want to participate that in the conventional way. So my idea was, why don't we do fundraising? My my de- degrees were in communications and sociology and anthropology. So I was like, well, we can just connect this with the nonprofit sector. You always hear about music being related to all these, these charitable causes. So why not organize a nonprofit where we do concerts and the 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 trade-off is all right if you're somebody who needs some promotion you can do a show but you're doing it for a charity that needs some more publicity and fundraising support so we call it music for charity and with another truman alumnus my friend mike healy was who was in the band somnia at the time me and him got the ball rolling he was working at dale's music i ran into him when i was getting a guitar repaired so we started this thing going and at that point, I was just going to open mics and getting my feet wet as a performer. Everything I did, I you know, it wasn't really in front of people. I was learning the process of writing songs as I was learning guitar and learning my voice. That's so cool. we made a habit of going to Cicero's open mic. That was the most welcoming. And through going there, I got to meet people. Uh, and Sam was playing. Sam was playing solo. You weren't playing with Northside Sweet Revenge. You were up there. You may have had a, a looping pedal in your guitar. That's right. Um, and you did a bang up set and, that, and I, I was a fan of M. Dowdy and Soul Coughing and that's what it brought to mind at the time and I was like this guy's really talented and one of the things that really came out from that set was your vocals were really showcased because you had minimal backing so I was like this guy can sing his ass off um, 
And I was really Thanks impressed. And I was like, I, I, I was like, I need to get in touch with this guy because he's somebody else. I would love to book on a show with the people that we had playing at that time, because yeah. we had a mix of a lot of solo singer songwriters. And then we had some people who were in bands and bridging that, that gap, at least sonically when you're trying to put a show on. Um, so somewhere along the line, cause you mentioned that this was about the time that you were starting to write songs somewhere along the line, you started to write more and more songs. Um, right. Well, the way it worked out was um, when I was in Kirksville, I immediately, because I had been a lyricist through the rapping and whatnot, um, I was already writing lyrics and poetry and spoken word. So basically the reason I started learning to arrange songs is because the musicians that I got to know got alienated with me humming melodies and them not being able to pick <laughs> up the, the key. So they're like, why don't you just get a guitar and figure it out yourself? And um, I won't say who said that to me, but it was the person who was the close friend at the time. And I was like, well, fine. To hell with you. I will. <laughs> um, and um, and we actually continued to work together after that. But um, that's what inspired. So I was working at a record store. Um, the proprietor was a friend. Of, oh, probably the same age as my parents at the time. But because this was, you know, at a period of time in his life where he wasn't old, old, but he was old enough. Um, we had a peer relationship and less of a mentor relationship. So we would talk about music when I was patronizing what he had in the shop and asking him to pick up stuff. So when he had his aneurysm, it fell on me to do all the, the buybacks and the ordering and everything. So we would talk while I was doing all that. And he would talk about the different influences he had when he was coming up. And then when he started to hear what I was coming up with, he would be like, Oh yeah, that reminds me of this person that I used to listen to and this person I like. And he, That's cool. he was very big on harping on the lack of productivity of modern artists. So he talked about the stones would put out four albums in a year. You know, these guys are taking two, three years to put an album out and it's like, they would just pump them out. And then I had friends who were into Annie DeFranco and she was prolific at the time putting out a ton of music. Um, so my thought process was if I don't write four albums worth of material in a year, then I'm a slacker. So when wow. I started writing, I was like, I did it one of two ways. I started with lyrics and wrote all these lyrics and these, I was doing that. And then at the same time, as I was learning guitar, like I was already vocalizing melodies because I just was a fan of music all my life. Um, learning how to actually transpose that to guitar and learning voicings and chords and different progressions to actually make that stuff work was the slow part. Yeah. But as I figured that out, then coming up with ideas based on just what I could pull off on guitar fueled other songwriting because if words I had didn't fit or melodies that I could vocalize didn't work, then I needed to write something to the guitar. So on, on two fronts, I was coming up with material. So, so in the first two years, I probably wrote 150, 200 songs. That's incredible, um, wow. man. That is a lot of songs. Well, I want to, I want to jump in here because, um, you know, if you keep a pulse on, on the content that you're putting out as a songwriter, you've been, you're very prolific and you put a lot of stuff out um, I think that uh, J Mac, don't you think we should uh, give our listeners uh, kind of kind of hear a, hear something that that Willie's put out recently? Does that sound good? Yeah, let's play let's play that song he sent us. This is really good. I want to hear this, and I want our listeners to hear this. So let's let's play this track. Um, we're gonna play uh, the song. No one wants to say goodbye, and uh, then 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 we'll chat about it. So here's "No One Wants to Say Goodbye" by Willie Edward Smith. Thank you. 
to have another day. What price would you pay to extend the dawn? Would you trade away the setting of the sun to steal another glimpse at the future going done? No one wants to say goodbye. I gave my all and still came up short. I put myself in debt, no matter the cost. Bartering for grace—it's all we've ever had. Another deck is stacked. That doesn't mean you've lost heart upon sleeve, cut off at the. Laboring to breathe On in my side Knock the wind out of me It takes all I can muster To heaven hold the fourth horseman's reins To pay the ferryman To turn the vessel around To tend a fallow field To spare the reaper's scythe To master sleight of hand To conjure up more time Heart upon
Wow, there's a real dark beauty in that song, Willie. Dark is right. <laughs> dark you want to explain right. where that came from? Yes. So, um, there. I been... can tell. I, mean, I can tell it's a very personal song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were there were a lot of deaths going on in the last month, um, and the the key one that catalyzed the writing of that song was uh, my god brother, who's five years younger than me, passed away. Yeah, I'm sorry um, to hear that. I didn't even know the circumstances of it at the time, and as I found out. Um, I wrote two songs that week. One was an immediate reaction, um, which turned out to be uh, less direct, but dealing with it. And then I challenged myself to just let go and just do something. Like this demo, because this is definitely a demo, was more intentional in addressing the actual circumstances yeah. that I was dealing with as far as getting older, everyone I know losing parents, um, in the midst of a pandemic, people losing loved ones to the, the, the virus going around. And then on top of that, these untimely deaths that were happening. So um, this harkens back to how I started off songwriting. Like typically what I've done for the last 11 years is I, I will go into the basement and I will just track drums. I may have something in mind or I just want to see, all right, what do I feel like doing today? What do I have it in me to do as far as, all right, a syncopation, a rhythm, a style. And I'll mess around with that. And I'll start with the drums and then I'll pick up the guitar and try and see if I can come up with anything on the humbug. Um, So it usually goes guitar. And then from guitar, if I think of a counter melody or a second guitar line, I'll work on that. And then once I figure out what I'm going to do with the guitars, I'll track bass. And if I think I've got something that's working as far as a melody yeah. um, and a composition, like with the arrangement, just the bare bones, then I'll either decide to write lyrics to it. Or if I really like it, I'll retrack it because nine times out of 10, I didn't keep time on the drums. <laughs> or well, I got to say, with, is a little off. sorry about that. Well, I, you know, I got to say with this track though, um, I know you said it's a demo. I think that there's, there's something really interesting and cool happening in the vibe that you captured for this as well, though, because, you know, my ear go- goes towards hearing like shades of like something off of um, Slint, uh, Spiderland, which, you know, a lot of the the tracks on that ended up influencing a lot of grunge artists later, but it's, it's, they were written in times of desolation. I think, you know, a lot of the guys in that band were going through things. It makes me think there's shades of like some of Sufjan Stevens early stuff. Um, but there's also I hear like these um, like funk and R&B grooves in there too, kind of overlaying with like this math rock emo kind of a thing. So it's a really interesting um, connection of styles. And I think that that you captured something with the emotion of like what the song is. Um, but I know when we were talking about this beforehand, you know, obviously it's a it's heavy subject matter for the song, but. I think that somehow with the music, there's there's a hopefulness also that comes through the song, um, which you captured here in this in this point, like and especially towards the soaring ending of it. So right. Yeah. I'm really curious though, uh, when you went to to write the song, did you did you have the theme in mind when you started it, or or did it start with the music and then and then it kind of like went from there like how did the so i i recorded all the music first and then after that i challenged myself to say all right so i want to write something that works with this and i knew what i wanted to talk about um Mm -hmm. now 
what I've been doing lately is I'll hop on Instagram live when I'm in the middle of doing something and talk about it or I'll post a picture when I write the lyrics, whatever. This one, the aha moment of it, the one that's actually up on Instagram is when I came up with the chorus. Because uh-huh. um, when you get to the chorus, when you're writing an arrangement, for me, the first thing I think about as a songwriter is, all right, this chorus needs to stand out. It needs to be distinct from the verse because coming from hip hop in the nineties, there were a lot of tracks that you go back and listen to where there are no changes. It's just one loop for the entire song. And the only thing that differentiates the chorus from the verse is there's a repeated refrain or if there's a DJ, hopefully, thank God, um, they actually scratch or mix it, do something creative with it. Now the, the songs that are more dynamic are the ones where they, bring in a completely different melody or they punch it up in some way that you notice, like they add a second drum loop or something to bring this track to life. So coming from, uh, I mean, I'm a child of the eighties, like there was a lot of dynamic music in all genres and there's a lot of overlap between pop and R and B, um, new wave. Um, and so I had that as an immediate influence. And then when you get into the the sampling era of hip hop, a lot of people sampled a lot of those tracks and recombined them. So all that stuff that comes out in high price approach songwriting, but then it, it, it shifted as I got more into music of my generation of people our age who were making music. So I'm listening to a lot of indie rock. I'm getting influences from Sunny Day Real Estate on yeah. one end of the spectrum or on another end of the spectrum, like more obscure stuff. Like a friend of mine, when I did college radio, he, hit me to this band from Scotland called Long Finn Killing. That's and, a cool uh, band name. And the the people who were in that band, they also um were contributors to Mogwai. Ah, so like the, this this, got this it. somewhat ambient jazzy yeah. out there art rock stuff. You know, I'm listening mm-hmm. to Shudder to Think. I'm listening to stuff from uh Easley Studios like the Grifters. Um um, I can I can hear that in what you do, man. Especially when you mention stuff like Mogwai, you maybe a little bit of explosions in the sky, like you know, yeah, definitely stuff and, like and that. It's for like sure. there's there's an overlap, but that song in particular, like I was going for a mood, um, yeah. and because typically I'm not going to go downstairs and play a down tempo beat. It's either going to be mid tempo or up tempo. I'm going to play something that's a little more lively. It, be it like a just straight time rocker or something that's funky or something that's got sure. the swing and I you know I'm a sucker for a waltz like I always love to play nice stuff on waltz <laughs> stuff like when I described this song to someone when I finished the demo initially I said it's kind of a dirge like yeah and I, I'll do songs like that where it's really like down tempo like or really moody and like if there's anybody who's like uh like the master of that, it's Alice in Chains. And of course, like if you were into grunge yes. in the, the 90s, Alice in Chains is there. But like the bass line really drives the song if you listen to it. But that bass line is me replaying the initial guitar melody. Mm. So the melody that I first came up with is basically what the bass line plays throughout the song. And that had, I think that's where you're maybe getting that jazzy R&B Vibe, Absolutely, cause it, yeah, because it's actually making me think of like some Sly and the Family Stone type of stuff, like where they just sit in the pocket and just like drive the beat home. So, you know, you know what I hear in it, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. That's oh, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah, Nick Cave. It's, is you know, Nick Cave has this darkness with his music, mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, when it gets to the chorus or at the end, I don't know if you meant it to be this way, but those voices in the background almost sounded ghostly to me. Yes. They almost sounded like the voices of the dead. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know if that's too heavy, but that's kind of what I got from it. Does does that ring true? That's a trick I employ. Let's just say it that way. So, um, uh, I used to just do one vocal. Like I took this approach, and this is asinine in retrospect, but um, 
coming out of the 90s, there were a lot of bands where it's like there was one vocalist and when they recorded, they didn't do overdubs. They didn't do background vocals. You would just like have that one person driving a song like Jeff Buckley, who I, I'm a big fan yeah. of, and particularly more so during that period of time. Normally when you heard one of his tracks, it was just his vocal. And he didn't double it. He didn't add any background voices. He just, he was such a powerful singer that his vocal could carry the song with the rest of the instrumentation. So you had two guitars, bass, and drum. So my ambition when I initially started recording myself was like, all right, one, it saves time if you can just only limit it to those three or four elements. Um, It's just like, yeah, let's bang it out. Who needs to double a voice or have a background voice? I'm not in the band, so why? But I mean, after a while, you start to realize, well, I have this resource and maybe it will help to punch it up or double the vocal. Like Elliot Smith is notorious for that. Like I didn't know he was doing it, but there was always something about his approach to vocals that was always appealing. And then when someone pointed out, yeah, he he doubles the vocals. Dave Grohl is another one that almost always um, double tracks Mm -hmm. his vocals. Well, he's one of the people I saw that pointed it out too because Dave Grohl talked about getting an early Elliot Smith cassette of his mm. demos back when Elliot Smith was in Heat Miser and he loved that stuff and um, so they're contemporaries like uh, the transition from Elliot Smith doing his solo material from Heat Miser is like 93, 94 I can see that so, now that makes a lot the of Food sense Fighters record came out in 95 and he was recording that stuff between 91 and 93 and they're both in the Northeast so makes a lot of sense interesting parallels but um the long and short of it was I realized, you know what? I can do more with my voice. Like, uh, I can't sing like Jeff Buckley. Um, you I have can. a decent range. Yes, exactly. But there uh, are a lot of high tenors in rock music. That's the other thing that there I, are. I, I, I haven't taken for granted. There are a lot of people who have really good voices, but their implementation of their tonality and their range isn't something they're always going to lean on. Like, I remember uh, I used to contribute to the Jeff Buckley International Newsletter. It was run by the estate, and they did that shortly after his death to keep in touch with fans. So there were the fan contributions and writing and stuff like that, and that's where I got my start doing music roots and stuff. But I remember reading in there, they interviewed people who were his contemporaries and his friends or big fans. Mm. Um, and Duncan Sheik, who, as sure. maligned as he is by people, um, is a gifted songwriter. And a 100%. Um, He's amazing. And and he talked about his process in contrast because at that period he had just put out his second album, uh, Humming. I'm pretty sure that was the title. And I wasn't a fan of uh, Barely Breathing. Was that the, the, the hit thing? That was his big hit song. Yeah, I always yeah, thought that so I song... wasn't a fan of that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't give him a chance, but I happened to catch him doing Bite Your Tongue, which is maybe the second song on his second album on like the Today Show or something. And like that song like rocked my world. And I'm like, all right, this guy is good. So when I saw the interview with him, I read it. And he talked about he using his voice as an instrument yeah, to serve the song. Now, my bass lines to connect these threads here. Um, if you listen to him, if it's a melodic bass line I'm playing, I'm probably in my head, I'm playing the bass, but I'm emulating a wind instrument. Like nine times out of ten, if you hear it, it's gonna the the rhythm I play is usually something that you would hear on like a trumpet or something. Nice, um, and that's something that's cool. I had to pick up in my own playing. Like, all right, either I'm playing the bass like a cello or I'm playing it like a trumpet. It's going to be percussive and rhythmic, or it's going to be uh, more fluid. Um, those are kind of the things that I tend to do. These these are the habits that I picked up on because. So, so this is the spot. Sorry, this is the spot where our listeners should pause the episode. Go back and listen to the song again 
knowing yeah. that you're you're approaching these bass lines like you're playing a whole other instrument. Because I feel like that's something really interesting to point out. One of the things that we like to do on the show is like have tips for other producers and songwriters. And I think that that's a really cool and outside the box approach and a great way to find new ideas. So whether you wait till the end of the episode or you do it now, go back and listen and see where he's coming from. So, yeah, for me, it's haphazard. It's something that I had to go back and get into the habit of listening to my music as a music listener, not me trying to write the song. It's like, what am I doing? Why does it feel that way? Yeah. And because I listen to a lot of different types of music, like I'm not a big fan of wind instruments in general, but I do like certain types of dub reggae. And Uh, for me personally, there's no music that uses wind instruments better than dub reggae, which is the more atmospheric, chill out hypnotic aspects of rape uh lots of reverb and, and delay but when they use horns they use them in a way that's one of two ways it's either soothing or it's triumphant yeah like if you go and listen to uh someone who's more contemporary would be mattis yeah the uh, the, Great the title track to his his first album youth it uses those type of horns that's a great song yes and it's totally empowering and and it uses horns and horns and rock do not mix. People are very begrudging. What about Scott, man? There was a whole thing where it's like horns and rock. Scott is Scott. <laughs> like if you see a horn player come out in the middle of a U2 song, you're wondering, all right, what are they about? That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> it's like there are people who are going to like Dave Matthews band and the E Street band. And there are people who are going to be like, oh, God, no. Another saxophone solo? Right. Yeah. So and it's it's all about implementation because Again, there are only 12 notes in music, right. unless you get into microtones. So it's the timbre and the tone of the instrument itself that makes those notes work for you or not work for you. And it just so happens because of whatever bass I'm using, I have several, but I typically record with the same two. That tonality to me, coming through the way I'm playing, usually ends up sounding like horns if I'm doing a certain thing, particularly if I'm in the, the, the upper register of the bass. That's cool. And like when I first started playing guitar, I was listening to Victor Wooten. And oh, I was yeah. like, that will never be anything I'll ever be able to do. But it, I think it did help to influence the way I worked on my bass lines if I had a very busy guitar segment. And like that that's cool. one, that's a, an example of that where like I was like, all right, what am I going to do with the bass? Because by the time I got to bass, I think I had four or five guitar tracks already going because I kept playing with what I wanted to do. Um, I like arpeggios. I like to create atmosphere and space with the guitar, but I also like to do drones and do stuff that's more like shoegaze. Yeah. And then every now and then, like the R and B side will come out when I come up with like a, a a melodic riff, like that that whole Jack White, John Spencer blues explosion side. Like I don't do that enough, but if I do it right, I'm usually happy with it. And this song was me saying, "All right, I'm going to throw all these things in and see what I get." And then I came up with the bridge. And in the second verse, when you get to that doom. Dun-dum, dun, that part. Um, that's the part I like. That's the part that probably pulls the most from like art rock and indie rock and math rock. It yeah, it's a good it change up. up. And it's like, in retrospect, like if I ever went back and redid the song, I wouldn't go straight to the chorus after the first time. Um, I would do that. And I, I stuck that in there because I wasn't counting measures when I did the drums. So the first <laughs> chorus came in a lot yeah. quicker. And I was like, there's an intro part that's a slow build. And I was like, I don't want to come in with the vocal that soon. So I'll just let the intro build and then I'll do one verse and go into the chorus. And then when I 
realize, all right, like, all right, I've got more time in the second verse. There needs to be something to go in the chorus. And I was like, all right, played around. I came up with that. And I was like, I really like this. Now, that could be the instigator for a whole nother song at some point. That's the beauty of music, man. I mean, whatever you did to get to where you did uh, with this song now, I think uh, it's a good recipe. Um, and, and thanks for sharing it with us and our listeners, because I, I feel like it's, you know, not only is it a little bit different vibe, um, you know, we like to play all kinds of music on the show. And it was just it, it's it's a great song, man. And uh, appreciate and, that. What Jay said about the the, the choral bit at the end. Yeah. Um, that's something that in the last few years I've been more inclined to do because I realized um, just how much that can really uplift a song and make it feel like a closing moment, like a crescendo. Even if you haven't written a, a melodic crescendo, it will give you that impression and have that counter vocal. When you talk about there being a little hope in the song, that's what those lines were intended to convey. Like the literal written lyric is where it is. And so for me to sing it like it was a choir, um, yeah. hauntingly in the background, that was one of the challenges towards the end was trying to figure out the mix where that wasn't too prominent so that it overwhelmed everything else going on with the song, but it was audible. No, it was, it was very effective. It was very effective. That, that, uh, that, I mean, honestly, you could, you could hear the song building and then it kind of all made sense when you get to that end. It kind of right, yeah. put the punctuation mark on it. I dug it. If I was to revisit, that would definitely be the focus. Like I know that's the end point for me. That was what I came to after I did everything else. And like I should have worked like a, a a screenwriter, like all right, we know where the movie's going to end. <laughs> yeah, and work back exactly. And exactly. I try and do that in the edit. Since 2010, when I went full digital with the recording and started doing everything in myself, and I wasn't a band anymore, I pretty much got out of the habit of tapping songs. And anything I record now, I usually forget it within a couple of days, and I never revisit it. Me too. So, so you know that that process of doing stuff. So like this song, once I banged it out. Like, I was like, if I really like something, I might come back to it. But, like, in general, it's like, it's gone. So, like, all I have is the document. But the lyrics were the most important part of the song to me above all else. Because once I Absolutely. realized uh, what I wanted the actual line of the chorus to be, coming back and coming up with that that, that counter vocal, that was important. And, and, and there's a tie-in to this being Suicide Prevention or Awareness Month, um, that, that last line. Is if you feel alone, no, we'll always love you. Deep within our hearts, home will always find you. That's beautiful, man. That's what's being said. And that's contrasting with the chorus, which is no one wants to say goodbye. Yeah. That's powerful. It's a heavy song, dude. It's going to stick with me for a while. I hope our listeners pay. Uh, I hope they rewind it and listen back to it at least one other time. It's, it might it's, inspire me to like re-record it. I might go back and like put on a click track, make sure I nail the drums so that you don't have that that slow down in the third verse, and make the arrangement more seamless so that the bridge is everywhere it needs to be in it and punch it up the way I think will probably serve it. So maybe you guys might convince me to go back and actually give a go of it because i know i can i can make something of it better than what i did but just to get the idea for me that's the most important thing um, yeah well i think i think there's something i think there's value in you know if you have an idea for another production you should try it and but there's value in what you captured with this one too even with that that spot that you mentioned because i think that there's something about you know we we had a we had a, a we had a guest on recently and we were talking about capturing um kind of lightning in a bottle capturing the the moment yeah the yeah. moment right 
And sometimes you can, you know, I found like through producing music, like I'll do something. I think, well, I'm just going to do this as like a guide guitar. And then, you know, I'll just play something. Maybe I'll just kind of like take, you know, taking chances, playing a solo. And then I'll be like, well, I'll come back to that later. And then I come back to it and I do like 20 takes and nothing is as good as the first one. Yep. Because you like captured something there was like something about the, about the emotion. So I think that there's something to this track with that. And, uh, I just think it's a really great tune, man. And I'm glad that you put it out into the world because the message is is super powerful and the music is really fitting to the vibe of the song. Um, so yeah, it's 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 pretty awesome, dude. Well, Willie, where can people find your music? There is only one place online you can find it because all the other ones have ceased to exist. All right, well, hit us with it. <laughs> okay, so it's ReverbNation.com slash Willie Edward Smith. Right on. Once upon a time, MySpace and Pure Volume and even STL Scene hosted music that I'd recorded, and they have all gone the way of the dodo. So (laughs) pray for ReverbNation.com. So ReverbNation.com slash Willie Edward Smith. For another excellent episode of Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, my name is Jay Mack. And I'm Sam Wade. And I'm Willie Smith. Saying until next week, stay Stay cosmic. cosmic. Stay cosmic, baby.